Okay, so uh, like I said, I'm Kotz, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a new series called Dear Westlight, and you're like, wait a minute, I've seen this before. Where have I seen this before? During the pandemic, we used to release these weekly videos called Dear Westlight, and basically each of the pastors got a chance to share what God's been teaching them. And um, I don't know if, you, if you've been here for a while, you know that we used to do a Dear Westlight even before the pandemic. So every year we would have these sermon series nicely organized and we would say like, you know, there's this one thing I wanna talk about. I think God's placed it on my heart to share it with everybody, but it doesn't really fit neatly into any of the sermon series. Like, well, then let's just create a series to dump all the stuff that we wish we could talk about, but we can't really talk about. So that's this. For the next three weeks, uh, I'll be sharing with you. And I think next week, Pastor Stan's gonna share with you. Um, and the week after that, I'll be back preaching again. But um, the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about just random things that uh, we feel like we want to, that we feel like God has given, has been teaching us, and we want to share with the people around us. That's you guys. Uh, and you're like, man, I came to church today because it's Advent season. We'll find a way to tie it into Christmas somehow, guys. Okay, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Okay, so. Um, the topic I want to talk about today, well, let me start off by asking this question. For those of you who grew up in the church, how many of you guys have read this book? Yeah. You know there's like seven of them, right? Did you guys read all seven of them? No. Oh, yes. Some of you have. Okay. It's called the Left Behind Books, the Left Behind Series. It's written by a guy named Tim LaHaye, and he was inspired to write this because there was another book that came out like decades before that called The Late Great Planet Earth by a guy named Hal Lindsey. And for those of you who don't know, and they've made two movies about this. The first one's, uh, what's his name, uh, Kirk Cameron? The Full House guy, yeah? And then, I don't know if you know this, but recently there was a Nick Nicolas Cage version of this movie, which just makes everything better, right? <laughs> Whoa. Was that Keanu Reeves or, I don't know. Okay, anyways. Okay, so if you don't know what this story is, it's a fictional story because it's a story that's supposed to take place in the future, so it's fictional, the characters are fictional. But the problem with this fiction is that when you read it, you're like, yeah, this is make-believe, but there's an underlying theology that we start thinking is true. The story, if you don't know, if you've never read this, basically one day in the future, a bunch of people in the world just disappear except for their clothes, they're just laying on the ground, right? And everyone's like, oh, you got left behind, man. You, you're, you know, and it turns out the Christians got taken away and the people who are not Christian are the ones who got left behind. And if you are a Christian, you're like, wow, I'm so glad I'm a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're like, Christians believe this silly stuff, right? And today I wanna talk about the fact that this version of what's gonna happen at the end uh, is just one version of what we believe is gonna happen at the end of the story. As a matter of fact, it's one really bad version of what we think is gonna happen at the end of the story. But because, if you see the sticker up here, over 55 million sold in the series, because it's so popular, a lot of American Christians think that this is what, what the Bible teaches. Okay, so I wanna teach you a word today, maybe you heard me use this word before, but the word that I'm gonna teach you today is this word eschatology. Eschatology. It's two words put together. Eschaton in the Greek means the things of the end, and ology, you know, like the study of, right? The study of the things of the end. So basically we call this end times. Maybe you heard that before, end times. Like this is how Christians think that the world's gonna end, okay? But when we think about eschatology, we think about the destruction, like, oh, there's gonna be earthquakes, there's gonna be fires, there's gonna be meteors, and, and people are gonna be dying, and you know, all that kind of stuff, right? But honestly, when we talk about the, 
the Bible and we talk about how the story ends, um, we see a happy ending. I don't know why people are so fixated on the destruction that they find in the book of Revelation and stuff like that, but it's actually good stuff that happens at the end. So the better way of interpreting eschatology is this. When is there going to be a complete heaven on earth? When is there gonna be a happy ending? Okay, and um, a lot of you are thinking like, okay, this is cool, you know, I've been coming to Westside for 15 plus years and you know, I don't think you guys ever talked about this before. And this is actually why I'm talking about it today because as I was like looking through like 2023, like what are we gonna talk about in 2023? I realized in the many years that we've been doing this church, there's a lot of things we haven't talked about. Like we haven't really talked about Revelation. We haven't talked about some of the Old Testament books. And so I thought, man, how bad is it that if you've been coming here from since the beginning of the inception of this church, you're thinking like, you know, we talk about the same things over and over and over again, that's cool, but we would like to also hear things that we haven't heard before. So this is why we're talking about this today. But you're also thinking this probably, why do I have to care about eschatology? Why do I have, like, do I, like, like, how does it benefit me? Does it make me a better Christian if I know more about eschatology? Well, what you're gonna discover today is this, how we believe the story ends affects our behavior today. You've probably seen a movie before and you know how the story ends. Like maybe you watched Titanic. Like I know how the story's gonna end, right? And not only do you know the ship is gonna sink at the end, spoiler alert, you also know that the old lady in the beginning of the movie is Rose you know, as she's telling the story. So you know she's gonna survive, right? So like, it's like, or like you saw, like my family just recently watched episodes one through three and my son is like enjoying the prequel of Star Wars. And he's worried if Obi-Wan's gonna die. And we're like, no, like he's in episode four. So like, the way that you view the story, the way that you behave, changes knowing what's gonna happen next, right? And you'll understand more what I mean by this by the end of the sermon, because this is the whole point of today's sermon, is what we believe of what, how the story's gonna end is gonna change the way we, we behave today. And by the way, if you believe in the things of the Left Behind series, the way you act today, uh, not too good. Okay, so, um, so what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna share with you the evolution of eschatology. You're like, yay, I'm so glad I woke up for this in the cold. Evolution of eschatology. What did the people back then believe the story's gonna end, okay? And what we're gonna do is we're gonna go all the way back to the Old Testament because believe it or not, eschatology is not just a Christian thing. It's also a Jewish thing. And their scripture, the Old Testament, this is what they believed, right? Because the question they were asking was this, when is there going to be complete heaven on earth? This is the stuff that they were obsessed with. Like, how is the story gonna end? We are sick and tired of being oppressed. We need to know when this paradise is gonna show up. Now, when they asked the question, when is this gonna happen, they weren't asking, like, give me a date. It's gonna be happy on January 14th, you know? At what time? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time, I don't know, Israel time, right? Or location, you don't wanna be here when this happens, you wanna be there? Like, these weren't the questions they were asking. They were asking more of, like, timing. In what sequence are these things gonna happen? And so, if you remember the story of Genesis, God created paradise, Humanity lived in it, but humanity rebelled and, he, and paradise started to crumble. And then God gave a promise to humanity saying, one day, all this is gonna be restored. One day, paradise will return. One day, humanity will get along with each other. Humanity will get along with God. Humanity will get along with creation. One day, it's gonna happen. So they're like, when is it gonna happen? When is it gonna happen? Next year, the year after, and thousand years, 2,000 years, when is it gonna happen? So 
ancient Jewish scholars, they looked through the scriptures. And as they were going through the scriptures, they came across two places in the Bible that talked about the end times. And remember, we're just talking about the Old Testament scriptures, okay? The Jewish scriptures. And they came out with these two versions. It's the Isaiah version and then the Daniel version, okay? The book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel. So let's first talk about Isaiah's version, okay? Isaiah's versions is very filled with hope. It's like really fun. Okay, so I'm gonna read you an excerpt from that. This is from chapter 65. This is God speaking through Isaiah about what's gonna happen at the end. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And when he says we're not gonna remember the old stuff, it's not a case of, the am of amnesia. What he's saying is, this new thing that we're gonna have is gonna be so good that there's no reason to look back and think, oh, remember those days. Like, no, there's no, no it's gonna be so good. Well, how good is it? He describes in the next part. I will rejoice over Jerusalem. This is God speaking. I'm gonna be so happy to see you guys doing your thing and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. No more suffering, no more pain. Next verse. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. We're talking about infant, uh, like early infant death or miscarriages. Like that's not gonna happen anymore. And or an old man who does not live out his years. Next verse. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. Now, there's a few things I want you to pay attention to here, okay? This is really important. There's a longevity and extension of life, but death still exists. Did you notice that? In this paradise that Isaiah is trying to describe that's gonna come in the future, death still exists. It's just rare, and it happens a lot later in life, right? The one who uh, fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed, like, what, you died at 100? <laughs> what, something must be wrong. Like, that's the way that we're gonna look at life. Next verse, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. At the time this was written, people will build houses, but for somebody else, because they were slaves. They will work their garden, but they won't be able to eat it because they were slaves. They were planting and nurturing these, these plants for somebody else. No longer, Will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat? So he's talking about slavery here. In the future, there will be no more slavery. Everybody gets to work for themselves. Like uh, it's gonna be a world where social justice has finally been realized. And he keeps going. For as the days of a tree, and a tree lives for a very, very long time, so will be the days of my people my chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They're gonna be working hard and they're gonna reap the, the, the fruits of what they, what they worked for. So this is like what God promised back in the Garden of Eden. Next verse. They will not labor in vain, in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. This is like a summary statement. For they will be people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. So there's descendants. There's gonna, people are gonna still procreate because they're gonna have kids. But remember, death still exists in this world this paradise. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. So he's talking about enemies. There will be no more enemies. You don't, this is like a prey predator type of situation. Israel was always the prey and there were always predators coming after them. Like, hey, that's not gonna happen anymore. You, we will all get along, no more war. And finally he says this, they will neither harm nor destroy, destroy on all my holy on 
all my holy mountain, that's a reference to the Garden of Eden, says the Lord. So Isaiah is painting for us this beautiful picture of what the future looks like, right? There's, and here's a quick summary of what that looks like. That this world that we're living in right now will be rebuilt one day, right? And there will be, in there, there will be people from the present and future. This is what I mean by that. This story takes place sometime in the future. And everything that's written in this passage right here indicates that if you happen to be alive when this thing happens, you get to enjoy the benefits of it and the children after that. But people who died before that, they get no benefit from this. Okay, so you wanna be alive at the time when this happens. Okay, so, so let me just recap what this said, okay? There's a new heaven and new earth that takes place here in the midst of this one, this old one we're in right now. There's social justice that's completely realized and people are living a long life, although there is still death, right? And people are feeling this sense of closeness to God. That is what Isaiah is trying to say. So that is Isaiah's version of eschatology. This is what's gonna happen in some undisclosed time in the future. Okay, are you guys following so far? Okay, I'm seeing nods, some confusion. Let's follow, okay, because it's gonna get a little more complicated. <laughs> Actually, a lot more complicated. Now let's talk about Daniel's version. Daniel's version is similar, but also different. Okay, like for example, in Daniel's version, God is looking at the earth and he says, you know what, this world, we're just gonna get rid of it and we're gonna start a brand new one. It's like a redo. Let's burn it up and start something brand new. So in the Isaiah version, it was like, let's build something in the midst of this one. In the Daniel version, it's like, let's wipe it clean, we'll start over again. It's a little different, right? Um, it's gonna happen uh, in, the, in a future date, just like Isaiah said, but in this version, people of the past somehow gets to enjoy it also. Well, how does that work? This is the last chapter, last verse of the book of Daniel. This is what he says. As for you, go your way till the end. If you are faithful to God, keep on going, keep going strong. You will rest, which is code for when you die, right? When you die, when you rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. There's something called a resurrection that's gonna take place, right? So Daniel's version of eschatology is this. God's gonna wipe out this current world then God will create a new world for people from all time. Whether if you're alive at the time or not, you get to enjoy it because God will resurrect you and you get to live in that moment. So we have these two versions, Isaiah's version and Daniel's version. And they're like, wow, which one's right? Which one do you want to be right? Are they contradictory? Can one be wrong? Like was Daniel receiving a prophecy and he got it wrong? Or was it Isaiah who got it wrong? Like which one do you prefer? Which one is more important? Well, these Jewish scholars, usually when they debate over these things, they, and actually not just Jewish scholars, but all scholars, right? You, you inevitably end up with like two sides saying, well, I guess we have to agree to disagree, right? But in Jewish culture, there is this unanimous consent over what they think this actually means. And this is really rare, but this, this is what happened, okay? They're saying that they're both right. It's just that they happen at different times. So here's a little timeline so that you understand what's happening. So this is the Isaiah version, right? And it takes place. Now, as they look through the Isaiah passages, they discover that there's a, a lot of amount of time this is gonna take place. They think that it takes about a thousand years. Like this, this Isaiah thing is gonna happen for a thousand years. So they call this the millennium. And here's the interesting thing about this. In the Jewish culture, 
big number, like when we say, come up with a big number, you'll say like a billion or a trillion. In the Jewish culture, a thousand was that big number. So it could be a literal thousand years or it could just be a figurative, like a long, they might be just saying it's a long time, okay? So he says, so the way they understood this is Isaiah's version of eschatology is gonna take place first for a thousand figurative or literal years, okay? And then after that, we have Daniel's version that's gonna take place right after that. And because Daniel is creating a new heaven and new earth, you know, wipe everything away and start something new, we call this the new heaven and new earth uh, eschatology. Okay, and this is something that's been agreed on by most, if not all, Jewish scholars. There's, like These two versions actually coexist. They could work together. It's not like one or the other. They're both true. And this version of eschatology is something that Christians also adopted. Like, so Christians also agree that this is what's gonna happen. As a matter of fact, um, the writer of the book of Revelation talks about this. So here's Revelation chapter 20. He says this, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. Next verse. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There it is, a thousand years. And then he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. So what this guy is talking about, who's John, next, next slide, he's saying that in this timeline, during the millennium, Satan, he's gonna be in chains. But at the end, he's gonna be released. And after he's released, God's gonna wipe everything away, so there goes bye-bye Satan, right? Like, that's, that's what they're saying here, okay? So, everybody is in agreement about this model right here. But there is a disagreement in another little detail in this model. And this is the part that I want you to pay attention to, okay? Next slide. So, if we were to look at this, right, in the bigger timeline, and Jesus came here for the first time, right? There were prophecies in the Old Testament about what the Messiah was gonna do when he showed up, right? Let's just say he does X, Y, and Z. The prophecy says when the Messiah comes, he's gonna do X, Y, and Z. When Jesus came the first time, he did X and Y, but not Z. So they're like, wait, Jesus didn't finish everything. He, the, the prophecy tells us that he's gonna do all these things. He did everything but those few things. So they started to believe, oh, it's because he's coming back again. And as a matter of fact, if you look through the Thessalonian books and the book of Revelation, it talks about how Jesus is coming back. So the big question where a lot of Christians agree and disagree on is this, when is he coming back? Is he coming back at the beginning of the millennium? Meaning everything's going bad and then Jesus shows up and then we get to have the Isaiah version where everybody's getting along, justice, you know, you get to live in the house that you build and you get to eat the fruit that you plant, right? Is that the world? Jesus ushers that in, and then after that, we have, God's gonna wipe it out and says, here, here's the other one. But there is another version of this where Jesus shows up here. Oh, this is called pre, oh, by the way, this is called premillennialism because Jesus shows up before the millennium. This is a term they should remember because we'll talk about that a lot. Okay, and there's a second version of this where Jesus shows up after the millennium. So we call this postmillennialism. There we go, postmillennialism. Basically, what this looks like is that as we're living our lives, things start to get better. The world gets better and better and better, and then Jesus shows up and says, good job, you did a great job with everything you've done. Now, let me show you what it really should look like, and he gives us a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. Okay, again, why is this important to us? 
Because, like I said earlier, what we believe happens at the end, sometimes without even knowing, it changes the way we behave today. And I want to give an example of that, okay? So, the question is, pre-millennium, post-millennium, well, which is it, Kotz? Which one should we believe? Well, let's look at church history and see what they believed. For the first 300 years or so, first to third centuries, they were pre-millennium, like pre-millennials, like they believed that through all this mess, one day Jesus is gonna show up, and when Jesus shows up, everything's gonna be fine after that. Why do they believe this? It's because the early church was very small. They met in households, and inside the household, they invited like three or four more households, and that was the church. They knew that a guy going out to the street and preaching a sermon isn't gonna change the world. It might change a few lives, but it's not gonna change the world. The Roman Empire were coming upon them, and it's not like, hey, maybe if we do a little fundraiser or a, a you know a luncheon or something, that the Roman Empire is gonna like vanish overnight. Like they knew that there was nothing they could do to change the world. So they knew that it's gonna take an act of God. They needed God to show up in their midst to fix it. Right? So in the first three centuries, when the church felt powerless, they believed in premillennialism. Millennialism. Okay. But here's the thing. In the years after that, the church started gaining power. They started getting bigger and bigger, right? Eventually, the Roman Empire accepted Christianity as their official religion, and now they're funding the church, and the church was getting big. As a matter of fact, it became a requirement. The way they took a census back then was by baptizing babies. So they got really, really big, and so from the third to 15th century, very long time, they started believing in something called amillennialism. Well, what is that? Amillennialism is this. So let's look at this thing again, the, uh, the timeline. So this is premillennialism, right? Amillennialism is basically saying that, hey, I don't believe that Jesus is coming back in the future. Millennium? No, no. Well, why? Because we believe that Jesus already came back a second time over here. Well, when was that? They believe that Jesus' resurrection was his second coming. Like the Roman Catholic Church believes this, okay? And a lot of Protestant churches believe this too, right? They believe that we're actually in the millennium right now. Like we're living in that time that Isaiah just described for us, which you're like, it doesn't seem like it. But the church back then would say, no, you have to accept it. That's exactly what's happening right now. Now, if this that we're living in right now is the millennium, that means that what you're living right now is the ideal that God has given us. So for that reason, people like who are peasants, they, they were like, we have to accept the place that we're in society. The questions they asked back then was, were not like, hey, did you live a good life? They asked questions like, God made you into a peasant. Were you faithful in being a peasant or did you rebel against it? If you rebelled against it, you're rebelling against God, you're not going to heaven. That's what they taught back then, right? It became like a power play thing. So that's all millennialism. But then eventually, around the 1500s, they stopped believing this and they moved back to premillennialism. Why is that? It's because in the 1500s, there's something called Reformation, where peasants and people, they started getting access to the Bible before it was only the, the priests they had access to it, right? And as they read it for themselves, they realized this isn't the world we're supposed to be in. Like, Jesus, Jesus doesn't want us to be slaves. Jesus, doesn't want us, Jesus demands that we be treated as human beings. Right? And they were like, man, we're being oppressed. And you know who's oppressing us? The church. This isn't cool. And so they got back into that mindset of 
There's nothing we could do about it. You know what we need? We need Jesus to come back right now so that we could start the millennium. So again, premillennialism was brought back. And that continued until the 1750s. In the 1750s, we are introduced to something that we haven't heard before in history called postmillennialism. Postmillennialism, if you don't know what that is, I'm going to remind you. If this is premillennialism right here, postmillennialism is when Jesus comes back after the millennium. Why did this happen in the 1750s? Because of the Enlightenment. They were coming out with advancements in med like medicine, like people were living longer. Transportation was getting better. That means the people who never heard about Jesus are now hearing about Jesus. Corrupt systems, all of a sudden people have the power to overthrow corrupt systems. And so they started feeling empowered. They started feeling like there's actually hope in humanity. And this continued for 170 years. They're saying like, you know, the church, we are actually the answer to all the problems in this world. Jesus, you know, like in the book of John, he says, you know, yeah, Jesus, like, I have to leave you, but I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is gonna allow you to do things, greater things than things that even I have done. So they're like, that's us. We are going to fix the world together. We're all in it together. So post-millennialism is this. The church will bring pockets of heaven on earth, right? So fix relationships there, destroy um, um, corrupt systems over there, right? All these things are happening around you. A heal a person there, right? All these things are breaking down walls over there. These things are happening, pockets of heaven on earth. And after that, Jesus will come and bring a complete heaven on earth. So we, are, we as a church, we're fixing things. We're being heaven on earth. And Jesus is like, this is great. All right, it's my time to come up and show you this is what the world should look like. So we are the ones that are bringing it closer and closer to it, and Jesus is the one that wipes it away and says, now this is heaven on earth fully realized. So this is post-millennialism. So look at the timeline again. Coming here, right? But here's the thing. In the 1920s, the world moved back to pre-millennialism. Why? What happened in the early 1900s? World War One, <laughs> where 50, uh, 17 million people were killed. And then a few years after that, World War Two, where 50 million people were killed, right? And all of a sudden, the church started thinking like, oh, my confidence in humanity is starting to take a hit. Like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe the world isn't gonna get better before Jesus comes back. Maybe the world's gonna get worse. And so premillennialism came back, and specifically in America, Okay, this is something specific to our country. They were like, no, no, it's not just premillennialism. Let's go to, to like, let's go even to the extreme, and that extreme is called dispensationalism. I know there's all these words that you're, you will be tested on later. Just kidding. Okay, what this what dispensationalism is is basically somebody saying, you know what? It's not just that the world is bad, and then Jesus is going to come and fix it. The world needs to burn. Like the world needs to be destroyed. So. Dispensationalism is basically like the world needs to be destroyed to, okay, by the way, how, um, the, okay, I have so many things to say. Uh, okay, let's go to this question. Why does eschatology matter? Remember, this is a question we asked early on. Why does it matter, right? It's because the way we behave when there's good news and bad news around us, it changes. I'll give you some examples, okay? So for premillennialism and dispensationalism, this is the implication. You see the chaos in the world, and you see that as a sign that Christ is returning. Right, you probably heard people say this. 
COVID-19, pandemic, oh, Jesus is coming back soon. You probably heard that, or maybe you said it so yourself, right? Bad things are happening, there's war all around us, Jesus is coming back. Whereas post-millennialists, they would say this instead, post, here we go, see the peace in the world. The world is getting better. People are holding hands, seeing kumbaya. So, oh my goodness, Jesus is coming back soon. As a matter of fact, after World War II, they created a committee to make sure that things like this never happens again. World wars, right? They had treaties and stuff like that to make sure World War III doesn't happen. When they heard about this, the church, they were sad about it because they think that they were messing with Jesus' timeline, that Jesus is gonna come back later now, now that there's peace in this world. They were actually sad that the world had more peace. But as the world got better and better, the post-millennialists were like, yes, this is great, Jesus is coming back soon. Do you see the difference there? It affects the way we behave, the way that we see the world. Another example, so pre-millennialism or dispensationalism in America, they primarily see the, the purpose of the church is to save people as a form of escapism, right? Um, the whole idea of left behind is specific, it's, 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 it's almost exclusively a dispensationalist view, okay? So if I don't convert you today and everybody disappears tomorrow, I wanna make sure that you're part of the people who gets taken away, okay? Or if you were to go out today and get hit by a truck, I wanna make sure that you go to heaven today. So it's like, I wanna do everything I can to protect you from the harm, pull you out, escape. Here's your escape pod. This is how you're gonna make it out. That's pre-millennialist view of Christianity. Post-millennialism is basically seeing salvation as transformation. You start following Jesus and he starts to change your heart from the inside out. And now you want to start meeting the needs of your community. You think you could bring something good to somebody else's life. You want to feed the poor because you think that God's image is in them. God starts changing the way you see people. You, start want, to, you want to start looking at enemies as friends because you want to love on them. Do you see the difference here? Another way of looking at it is the dispensationalists, they look at the world as us versus them. There's the people who are saved, going to heaven, and people who are not, right? There are the people who sin, uh, like these people have a preference for different, uh, you know, um, attraction for different genders, that's over here. And there's people who are straight over here, right? Like, who's going to heaven, who's not? Who's gonna get taken away, who's not, right? You see a us versus them mentality. Whereas post-millennialists, when they look at the world, they see the world as us for them. Because they believe that we're all in this together. We're gonna make the world a better place together. Regardless of what your belief is, we are in this together. So, I'm gonna love on my Muslim neighbor. I'm going to love on the people who disagree with me on politics. I'm gonna do everything I can to bring transformation into my community. So, with that being said, I know that was a lot that we went over, right? I want you to know that how we believe the story ends, it so affects the way that we behave today. So the question is this, because I'm sure a lot of you have read the Left Behind series book, right? That is a dispensationalist way of looking at the world. And because it was so popular in America, I think a lot of Christians believe that that's exactly what all Christians believe, but that's not true. As a matter of fact, as free Methodists, that's the denomination of this church, we are post-millennial people. We believe that the world is supposed to get better because the way that we as a church behave in this world. 
And because of that, all the implications, the way that we behave, it changes. 